Why are laws failing to protect women from violence, and what is being done to change this? Join us as we explore these questions and more. This is Spotlight, Justice for Women, a podcast from the Wilson Center. Justicia para las mujeres. Las leyes no son suficientes. This is your host, Beatriz Garcia Nice, with the Latin American Program. On this episode, we will discuss the effects of migration from the Northern Triangle for women and girls. The Northern Triangle is comprised of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. Migration from these countries to Mexico and the United States put migrants, notably women and girls, at a greater risk of exploitation, human trafficking, and gender-based violence, now exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. The reasons for migrating vary from country to country. According to UNODC data, Honduras has the highest murder rate in the world, while El Salvador has the steepest concentration of gang members. In Guatemala, migrants point to poverty as the main reason to migrate and accessibility to Mexico's southern frontier. A series of field interviews by our guest, Guadalupe Correa, showed that 38% of interviewed migrants mentioned violence and insecurity as the main cause to leave. 49% referred to deplorable socioeconomic conditions. In 2014, a report by the American Immigration Council showed that 61% of girls reported crime, gang threats, and general violence as a reason to leave their homes. Northern Triangle women migrants are most vulnerable to trafficking, as transit governments do not provide a comprehensive network of support and protection. Consequently, women unknowingly fall into human traffickers' networks. I am joined today by Dr. Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, Wilson Center Global Fellow, Associate Professor at George Mason University, and non-resident scholar at the Baker Institute Center for the U.S. and Mexico. Her areas of expertise include migration, border security, and human trafficking. She is the author of Los Zetas Inc., Criminal Corporations, Energy, and Civil War in Mexico. Her most recent work centers on organized crime and human trafficking in Central America and along Mexico's eastern migration routes. Welcome to Spotlight, Guadalupe. It is a pleasure to have you here with us. It is a pleasure to be here, Beatriz. Thank you for your invitation. I want to begin our episode by asking you about two terms that generate a lot of confusion and I think can frame today's discussion. What is the difference between human trafficking and human smuggling? Absolutely, Beatriz. This is a very important question because a very I mean, it's very common that human trafficking and migrant smuggling, two different concepts, are confused even by journalists and public opinion leaders in different parts of the world, mostly in Spanish-speaking countries. And I will explain you why. I will provide you with very simple um, definitions of the term by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. Um, human trafficking and migrant smuggling are very complex phenomena, but there are different phenomena. Human trafficking, according to the United Nations Office on Drug and Crime, involves the recruitment, movement, or harboring of people for the purpose of exploitation, such as sexual exploitation, 
for labor, slavery, or organ removal. The victims can be girls, women, men, children, or adults, and boys. And they are trafficked by the use of improper means, such as the threat or use of force, fraudulent schemes, deception, or abuse of power. This is very important. I, we have to understand that the purpose needs to be exploitation. It involves a recruitment, movement, or harboring of people, but the means are force, fraud, or coercion. It can occur in a, within a country or across borders. And then, just uh, in sum, human trafficking is characterized by an act. The acts are the recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring, or receipt of people, specific means, as I mentioned, threats or use of force, deception, fraud, abuse of power, or abuse of someone's vulnerable condition for the purpose of exploitation, for example, sexual exploitation, forced labor, slavery, or organ removal. I will tell you why it is very common that people, particularly those who speak Spanish, uh, make this, this mistake. For example, human trafficking in Spanish is trata de personas, and migrant smuggling in Spanish it's tráfico humano. So migrant smuggling in Spanish is tráfico. And human trafficking in Spanish is trata. So it's, kind of, it's, it's it, the word, the trafficking, tráfico, tráfico is uh, smuggling. And trata is human trafficking. It might still sound very confusing, but it's because of the terms in Spanish and English. But still... For many people who speak exclusively English, uh, human trafficking and migrant smuggling are terms that are the same, and they are not the same. Let me tell you that, for example, in terms of human trafficking, there is always a victim and a victimary. So there's somebody who exploits somebody and keeps the person in a situation of modern-day slavery. In terms of migrant smuggling, migrant smuggling, somebody... I mean, somebody is being helped uh, to move from one part to the other one and arriving to a country illegally. And what about sexual exploitation? How do these two terms relate? As I mentioned, human trafficking involves a recruitment movement or harboring of people for the purpose of exploitation. One purpose, the purpose of sexual exploitation, is according to the data available of the, the most popular, the most frequent way of exploitation, sexual exploitation. Uh, to the extent that many people, when they listen to the term uh, human trafficking, they think about prostitution or sexual exploitation. And we're going to discuss that because not pro prostitution is, does not equal to human trafficking. But sexual exploitation is a very uh, frequent way that migrant smugglers, the ones who facilitate the way, uh, and other actors find as a way to, to deal with very vulnerable people, especially women and girls. Boys and men are also exploited sexually. But according to the statistics we know, and because of, of, of gender issues, we know that women and girls are exploited sexually more frequently than men. And we see that of all the forms of exploitation, along the migrant routes, sexual exploitation is the most frequent one uh, in, with regards to the phenomenon of human trafficking along the migration routes. 
women and girls because of the situation of vulnerability, because the gender and because of other dynamics that, that facilitate sexual exploitation, facilitate um, the possibility of smugglers themselves or smugglers in conjunction with their partners uh, to exploit women sexually. But let's, uh, it's very important to consider that in order to talk about human trafficking, we have to have the, act the, the actions, the recruitment movement or harboring of people, uh, the means, which is forced further coercion, and the end, which is sexual uh, or forced labor or slavery or organ, or organ removal as, as the, the purpose, the, what is the purpose of exploitation, right? So not everybody who's sexually exploited is in a situation of human trafficking, but it's in the phenomenon of human trafficking, the most uh, frequent form of exploitation is sexual exploitation of women and girls. My following question goes more into the risks that Central American women, most notably from the Northern Triangle, face at home to be willing to risk becoming a human trafficking victim in a foreign land? In, in, in many regards, of course, um, in these countries, uh, the, the, I mean, gang violence is very well spread out. And uh, gang violence, uh, I mean, the extraction of friends of people, I mean, women, girls, men, boys, happens all over the board in, 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 in very extended uh, parts of the territory of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, uh, mainly in El Salvador and Honduras. Uh, but women, because of this model of extortion, because of this model uh, that, 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 that takes money from poor people, women and girls are in, in, a, in a very vulnerable situation because of their gender. And gangs as well are involved uh, to some extent in human trafficking rings. They don't operate human trafficking rings in their countries, but always because of the, of the conditions of insecurity, men and women are always uh, in a more vulnerable position of not only being exploited, but also being raped, being physically abused in several ways. Uh, and I mean, the economic abuse, the extortion, uh, the, uh, the extraction of rents, what it's called, mm -hmm. the war tax, it's, it's, it, it applies to everybody. But because of their condition of women, women are, are more vulnerable for physical abuse by gangs in their countries of origin. And also they are, they are potential victims of human trafficking. Just a quick question to touch upon your last comment, Guadalupe, but do gang violence, most notably in El Salvador, have any links to cartels in Mexico? I ask you this because I feel that many times both types of organizations are confused by many people. They do have some links. They are not drug traffickers per se. They collaborate by allowing the transportation through the territories they control of drugs, 
through their territory. They collaborate with drug traffickers. We know about these from different court cases, different cases in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador that are, that are decided in the United States. They collaborate. But in general, gangs are not, I mean, are not specialized on trafficking drugs and, uh, and at, uh, at a higher level. Right? They are not the ones that are in charge of uh, producing, transporting, and selling those in the United States. Of course, they distribute drugs sometimes among their members, and you know they participate in selling drugs in some parts, some of the territories that they control, or they ask for extortion fees uh, to those that sell drugs in their territories, in their communities, but in reality, they are not drug traffickers. They are not drug cartels. They sometimes collaborate with them. They sometimes sell drugs that are sold by the cartels themselves, or they kind of allow the passage uh, of drugs through their territories, but they don't operate the, uh, the, I mean, the drug trafficking businesses at the, at the largest level. This brings me to my following question for you. What is the connection between Central American gangs and trafficking in person networks? Yes, um, it is, this is a very, very important question because in, in some uh, media outlets, there are some statements that allege that gangs uh, operate large-scale human trafficking rings. In my research in Central America and along Eastern migration routes and other migration routes in Mexico overall, I have not seen that. I have not seen that they operate these uh, human trafficking rings at the, at, the, at the largest level. I see that they can participate sometimes recruiting or transporting women to the to this to these uh, human trafficking rings, and they are partners maybe of these human trafficking rings in, in one way or the other one. But in reality, they of course uh, because of the force that they can exercise over the populations that live in the territories they control, they rape women or abuse women physically. But they don't operate very well organized uh, human trafficking rings. I, that's something that I have not seen, but I do have seen these statements or some of the journal, uh, some of um, the newspaper articles where these allegations are made. My research does not show that. Gangs are basically models of extortion. They, they live off extortion of poor people. Poor people uh, abuse poor people and extract rents from poor people. And that's not, uh, that does not mean that they kind of operate these human trafficking rings or move people from one country to the other one, transport them from one country to the other one or, or operate domestic human trafficking rings at the larger scale. Of course, but this extortion, is it a motivator to migrate for these women? Absolutely. This extortion is one of the motivations that everybody that, that want to migrate or are forced to migrate have. Uh, this extortion that does not allow them to live a decent life or sometimes because they cannot pay these white tax or this extortion fee, they are threatened and sometimes their family members are killed because they didn't pay this extortion fee. So violence and this model of gangs are, are, are connected. 
tightly connected, and this is tightly connected to forced migration, and this is also tightly connected to those crimes that are committed along the migration routes because of the vulnerability of migrants, particularly of women and girls, because of the of their gender and because of the fact that they are physically more vulnerable, physically um, uh, weaker than men in, in overall. Interesting. Now I want to ask you about what happens when women and girls begin their journey. There are two main migration patterns for Central American migrants, one south to Mexico's southern states and one north to the U.S.-Mexico border, with the U.S. as their final destination. Aside from location, what are their main differences and how do these illicit networks exploit women on these routes? Migrants are forced, I mean, Central, many Central American people are forced to migrate, but if they weren't forced to migrate, they would be happier in their countries, they would be close to their families, and so on. Most of them don't want to stay in Mexico, don't want to stay in Tapachula, don't want to stay working in Mexico's southern border, in the cities of, of Mexico, in the Mexican cities. They want to go to the United States because the opportunities offered in the United States are definitely greater than the ones that are offered in Mexico. Uh, the ones who have more resources or have families or more networks in the United States are more, uh, I mean, are more successful trying to get to the United States because their families and money, uh, migrants with more resources are more, uh, I mean, are more capable of succeeding and more capable of arriving to the United States. Those that don't have, uh, I mean, enough resources, sometimes they have, they get stuck uh, in cities like Tapachula on Mexico's southern border uh, cities, because they they start like to, starting to work. They start to work in different restaurants, in different uh, domestic workers, and they eventually end up. Some of them eventually end up in, in in sex work because they would they are they are dreaming about going to the United States. They start working with the idea of moving north, but they sometimes they stay there and because they are close to their family, sometimes they have kids that they left in their countries of origin or they have family members, mothers, kids and, and, and other, I mean, all their networks. So sometimes they prefer, they don't have the resources to go north. They start working in the south and then they, they, they decide to stay there because they can move easy back and forth and they are closer to their families. Most of these, these people that stay in Mexico working are the ones that are less fortunate, that have less resources and have less networks in the United States. There are others that are exploited uh, are along the migration routes because they have some money to continue and so the money ends and they start to, do, to perform different activities among those sex work and they eventually, some of them because of the vulnerability, end up in human trafficking rings forced and exploited and with all the elements that we explained in the beginning of what human trafficking is. Most of the time, you know, they are, they are very vulnerable and sometimes they, they are not even aware that they are not consenting to, to do this sex work and they are exploited and sometimes they cannot get out of this situation. Some of them are even exploited in the United States. So this is another phenomenon. Sometimes they are recruited, they, there is fraud and they are told that they are going to get a job in the United States or in other countries of uh, industrialized nations and, and in the end they end up being exploited and they end 
end up being not capable of escaping because of their condition with regards to nationality, to citizenship. So they can be exploited either in the southern part of Mexico along the migration routes and, and in the United States or another industrialized country because of their condition of vulnerability. So this is not a phenomenon happening just in their countries, but you're saying that these networks also operate inside the United States? Exactly. There are judicial cases uh, that have already been decided in the United States that have figured out how human trafficking rings operate. For example, uh, human trafficking rings that operate in Tlaxcala and how some of the women that are exploited in Tlaxcala are transported to the United States because of the migration networks that exist. Some of the uh, some of the some of those that have migrated to the United States bring people from Tlaxcala and exploit them in U.S. cities, and this is this has been uh, verified by by those judicial cases, by those decisions on the cases themselves. You can you can you can see that. So this is a very complex phenomenon that, as we mentioned before, can happen domestically or it can happen internationally. And this is why it is connected with migrant smuggling, because smugglers also facilitate that, that transportation sometimes. And sometimes a migrant smuggler and a human trafficker can be uh, partners. So the smuggler can take and can recruit and can commit fraud and can take a migrant to a human trafficking ring. They do not necessarily need to be the same one. And many times they are not the same ones. They specialize, one transporting, one providing the, or facilitating the transportation or the, the, the passage to the United States and the other one exploiting them in a place. And there's a financial transaction involved, I assume. There's a financial transaction involved in the beginning between the smuggler and the migrant that's forced to travel, but there's a financial transaction between the human trafficking and the smuggler that cheats and that that commits fraud with the migrant that pay, pays money to the smuggler to take the person to the United States. And sometimes they, they understand that they are more vulnerable than others and they have a connection with a human, traffic, a human trafficking ring and, and they bring the people to the human trafficking ring instead of facilitating the passage to the United States. This, is, this happens, this happens uh, several times, and, and I have some records of that, some testimonies of these things happening. Uh, Mexico and the United States have rolled out several initiatives throughout the years. The most recent one for Mexico called La Frontera Sur, or Southern Border Plan, and the United States remain in Mexico. I want to touch upon these because they directly affect Northern Triangle women when it comes to gender-based violence. How so? And what about now with the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, the, the Southern Border Plan, Plan, Plan Frontera Sur, took place during uh, the, the second half of the administration of Enrique Peña Nieto after the 2014 uh, unaccompanied minor crisis. This has to do with cooperation between the United States and Mexico in order to prevent or to stop migration continue flowing from Central America uh, to the United States. So Mexico was collaborating with the United States and sealing to some extent, right, the southern border. So enforcing immigration in Mexico by Mexican authorities put migrants in a much more vulnerable position, but because of the need they have 
to migrate because of the very complex situation that they have and because of the networks that they have in the United States, sometimes family reunification is a very important pull factor, the incentives that they have, they, are they will continue migrating no matter what, no matter how many police men or, or out the National Institute of Migration of Mexico, how many, I mean, how many elements of, of law enforcement agencies in Mexico or the United States, people will continue migrating. And that puts them in a more vulnerable condition because enforcement uh, is a great business for smugglers. Smugglers, uh, understanding that, can tell uh, the, the people that are forced to migrate, I can provide you with a way to evade the checkpoints of Mexican authorities. So they charge more money and they put migrants in a much more vulnerable situation because they make them, these, these measures make them invisible. That's the same thing with the migration protection protocols or metering. People are forced to wait. People that are very vulnerable are, are, are forced to wait in Mexico, either waiting for an opportunity for their case to be heard or once they wait for their uh, case to be decided in court, they need to wait in Mexico in very dangerous cities, in very vulnerable conditions. The more vulnerable the condition you are in, the less favorable conditions of security you will have. And many of these people stay at the border. Border cities are extremely dangerous, particularly if you don't have resources. Therefore, that puts migrants in a more vulnerable situation and in, in, in greater possibilities of being exploited by a human trafficking by human trafficking rings. That is the same within in the situation of COVID-19 that multiplies, right? We started in 2014 and, and the coming years until 2018 when uh, Enrique Peña Nieto's administration finished Plan Frontera Sur, more enforcement continued during the next administration and also because of the sending of Mexican authorities of the National Guard to the southern part of Mexico and plus metering uh, migration protection protocols that, that put people in, in greater vulnerability and, and more possibilities that women and girls in particular because of their conditions as we discussed, they could be forced to, to commit sexual acts or, or being exploited sexually and now in COVID-19 that is multiplied because people are waiting, they cannot even start their process of asylum. So asylum is, is canceled and more people that had, had to escape the conditions uh, because of gangs or because of the fact that they didn't pay the extortion fee to the gangs, they are left in a country that it is not that is not safe and that has many many problems uh, in in terms of security and also with very vulnerable uh, economic situation because these people are are waiting in in places and that not necessarily provide them with jobs and that not necessarily provide them with the possibility of stability. To finish off, I want to ask you your thoughts on what measures can countries such as the U.S., Mexico, and the Northern Triangle countries take to minimize these risks for women and girls when it comes to gender-based violence? The three countries need to collaborate. The responsibility of the countries of the Northern Triangle to assure 
conditions favorable for the development, for the safety of women and girls is it's a, it's a main thing that we need to consider. It is not necessarily only Mexican authorities and only the United States. All Central American governments should provide security to the women and girls and, and the justice system needs to work to prosecute those who exploit sexually women and girls uh, and human traffickers. That's one thing. Mexico and the United States need to also collaborate with, the, with these countries to, to make possible the development. Mexico um, as well should not just only enforce pressured by the United States uh, migration because it puts migrants and especially women and girls in a, in a more vulnerable situation as we, as, as, as we said. So also Mexico needs to improve their justice system, needs to improve the security situation and can also help or, or get into an agreement with uh, the partners, their friends in the United States and in the, in the Central American Northern Triangle to facilitate uh, a more regularized form so people are not so in, uh, made invisible. And the United States, it's, it has, has a probably greater responsibility because of the economic power it is, because of the capacity the United States have in terms of material resources to also face the responsibility that they have with women and girl in, girls in Central America because the United States also uh, was responsible of what happened in the region last century with the, civil, with the civil wars and because of its involvement in these countries during the Cold War. Therefore, there's a responsibility, Mexico, the United States, and the Central American countries. Mm -hmm. I mean, all the countries that form this block need to be collaborating to create a more equal and more just and to support development for everybody. But women and girls that are more vulnerable to be exploited sexually within this, this situation we would have a better future if, if the countries realized that with collaboration and not just closing the borders will we'll solve the situation. Development and, and inclusion in this development of, of the countries will, will help people not to leave but to stay. And with that, I want to thank you, Guadalupe, for joining me today here at Spotlight and sharing with us your expertise on the challenges of women and girls from the Northern Triangle face when migrating north. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. This podcast is brought to you by the Wilson Center with support from the Center's Brazil Institute, Latin America Program, Mexico Institute, and Maternal Health Initiative. Our thanks to Linda Roth, John Tyler, and the rest of the Wilson Center's communications team. Special thanks go to Aaron Jones, who not only produced this podcast, but composed the music. I'm Anya Prusa. Join me and my co-hosts, Beatrice Garcia-Nice and Olivia Soledad, next time on Spotlight Justice for Women. Thanks for listening.